Hey guys, it's Dr. Childs here. Today I want to talk about reasons why you still have hypothyroid symptoms, even if you're on medication, even if your lab tests are normal, and so on. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to dive into uh, several different reasons that can explain this phenomenon. <clears throat> and hopefully after you learn, or after we talk about this stuff, you'll have a better idea of, as to what sort of things you should be looking at and what sort of therapies you should be pursuing. And before I do that, real quick, just just want to say a couple things here. This information is going to be relevant to you, whether you have a thyroid, whether your thyroid's been removed, um, whether you have Hashimoto's, whether you just have any flavor of other hypothyroidism, whether you're on thyroid medication, whether you're not, and regardless of what type of medication you're on. So just to put that out there before we start. So number one. Um, what, the number one reason, and we'll go through these, are all numbered, so 1 through 12. Um, the num and this isn't in terms of, um, I would say, in terms of importance by any means. We're just going to go through these. Um, but for this, uh, for number one, we're going to be talking about uh, the right type of thyroid medication. And I've talked about this in detail in various other blog posts, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. But I just want to point out that um, one important fact, and that is the type of medication that you are taking should be tailored to your body. And whatever you need is going to be very specific to you. So the standard sort of treatment for hypothyroidism, um, if you get to the stage where you need medication, if your lab tests um, you know, suggest that that's the case, most doctors will provide you just one type of thyroid medication, and that is levothyroxine or Synthroid, or which are classified as T4 only thyroid medications. Um, and if that doesn't work, you're tough. You know, that's kind of it, at least from their perspective. Now, the truth is that's not the only type of thyroid medication. In fact, that's only one of three major classes of thyroid medications, and there are many more types of thyroid medications. So I've included some of them here. So you have the T4 only medications, which includes levothyroxine, Synthroid, Tyrosin, Tyrosin Sol, Levoxyl, and then there's a whole another in, um, set of brands depending on the country that you live in and so forth, but these are, you know, the general theme there. Then you have T4 plus T3 combinations, which includes compounded thyroid medications, and then of course NDT, which includes Armour, NP thyroid, Nature Thyroid, etc. And then you have the T3 only thyroid medication, which includes sustained release T3, Cytomel, and Lyothyronine. So these are the different sort of major classes. And you may need, let's say you're on T4, well you might do better if you're on a T4, T3 combo, or you might do better if you're on T3 only. So you, you really need to think outside the box in terms of what's available to you as a thyroid patient. So that's number one. Again, don't want to go into a lot of detail there because I've done it before in other videos. Number two, the next thing has to do with your dose. So you, maybe you're just not taking enough thyroid medication. Um, and this is actually fairly common. Again, I've talked about this a lot, um, but I do want to mention at least one important thing here. And that has to do with how doctors will preferentially dose uh, hormones, thyroid patients, um, uh, and other other uh, medications um, when it comes to to um, uh, patients and what they like to do or what they would rather do I should say is they would rather underdose you than overdose you and this becomes a problem for thyroid patients because if you underdose a thyroid patient patient whether it's intentionally or unintentionally the result will be an insufficient amount of thyroid hormone in the body and therefore the manifestation of hypothyroid symptoms so it's pretty important and so the question is why do they why would they rather underdose you um, and the reason is it benefits them more than it benefits you. And by them, I'm referring to the doctors here. And the reason is when you take too much of a medication, so in this case, I'm saying let's imagine a scenario where your your body's needs um, would be um, completely 100% if you had a 
75% or I'm sorry, 75 micrograms of levothyroxine or Synthroid. So imagine if th that was the dose that you were trying to get to. Now your doctor would rather give you a dose that's about 10 or 15% less than that because if they give, the, the risk is if they give you more than 75 micrograms, you're going to start experiencing potentially some side effects, which might include heart palpitations, jitteriness, anxiety, and so on and so forth. And remember, this is just hypothetical. I'm just using this as, an as a way to explain this, um, this potential problem. So your doctor would rather underdose you because there are, you know, potential side effects with any medication and that, that also includes thyroid medications because they're hormones. Um, and if you reach the point where you're taking too much, then you might have issues which might uh, result in um, uh, complaints or phone calls later in the day and potentially even legal issues. So the doctors would rather underdose you. And the one important example I use here to, to help drive this point home is the idea of using insulin in diabetics. So doctors will always underdose insulin because the risk of hypoglycemic episodes um, is, is, not, is it's just higher. It's not even really high. It's just a little bit higher. And so the, your doctors would rather you be in a state where you're not hypoglycemic um, for that very reason. So this sort of same concept uh, and logic can apply to thyroid patients. Um, there's more reasons than just that, but that's the one I want to focus on here. Number three would be your thyroid symptoms are not actually thyroid symptoms after all. So I think this is another really important one. Um, and what this has to do with is what I call thyroid tunnel vision. And I totally get why this would be the case, but I define thyroid tunnel vision as a state of mind where you believe that um, all of the negative symptoms or w whatever you're experiencing, quality of life issues, etc., you attribute all of those things back to your thyroid. And I think the reason this occurs is probably because there are many patients who have been ignored for, for years by their doctors. Um, you know, they've been struggling for so, for so long and they haven't been able to get any help. So, and they read information like mine and they're convinced that their thyroid is to blame. And a lot of these patients are probably at least somewhat, um, somewhat accurate or, or at least their, their intuition is somewhat accurate. However, I'm here to tell you as somebody who's treated a lot of patients that there are many other medical conditions which can cause symptoms which mimic those found in hypothyroidism. And these medical conditions, if present, must be treated or at least addressed. Now, some of them can be and some of them can't be. It kind of depends on, on the ones that are here. But I at least want to open your eyes to the, to the understanding that there are other medical conditions which mimic hypothyroidism. Some of these, I've listed them below, include obstructive sleep apnea, which is really important because if you can't get enough sleep, it's going to cause fatigue, especially weight gain, and all those things may actually worsen your thyroid function. So it's sort of double whammy in that, that sense. Chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, viral syndromes, including Epstein-Barr virus. Um, obesity, just having um, extra weight on your body can drag down your thyroid as well um, and result in symptoms such as fatigue and, and depression and so on. Anemia, of course, is another one, and then adrenal insufficiency. So these are all important conditions that you should be tested for, um, or at least should be, I shouldn't, let, let me retract that statement. You don't necessarily have to test for these things, but if you are somebody who is being treated for hypothyroidism and yet you still have persistent symptoms, despite being on medication, despite having norm, so-called normal lab tests and so on, these are the things that you should be thinking of. And I consider this to be just good medicine, right? Because you don't want to miss any of these things. There's also a more complete list here. Again, I, I didn't go over all of them because we'd be here for a long time, but you can take a look at the, this image here to see um, a more complete list. And then you can also look directly here and check out the studies I've linked. Number four, another important one is uh, the presence of something called autoimmune thyroiditis, also known as Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And the reason I've included this here is because there are a number of patients who have Hashimoto's thyroiditis um, who are going to be missed by um, conventional doctors unless certain tests are ordered. 
And so what do I mean by that? Well, there's a kind of a well-known, well-documented scenario in which Hashimoto's patients have symptoms of hypothyroidism and should be treated, yet they present with normal labs. So this becomes a problem for you as a patient because let's, let's imagine a scenario here. Let's say that you are somebody who has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but you don't know it. Okay, you don't know it yet because you're just feeling poorly. You have fatigue, constipation, um, weight gain, uh, muscle aches and pains, hair loss, cold intolerance, etc. You have all the symptoms of hypothyroidism. So you go to your doctor to get checked. Okay, your doctor orders, let's say the TSH and maybe a free T4. Those come back normal. So your doctor says, sorry, it's not your thyroid. It's something else. Okay, they might not tell you what it is, but they might just say, hey, it's not that. Well, that's a problem because if they would have checked your anti-TPO antibodies or your anti-thyroglobulin antibodies, those might have come back positive, especially in this you know hypothetical scenario that we've created, and that would explain your thyroid symptoms. But the problem is most doctors don't automatically test for those things. And there's a, a subgroup of patients with Hashimoto's who can have normal lab tests with elevated antibodies and still carry the diagnosis of Hashimoto's. So there's a probably a fair number of you listening to this right now who are perhaps in that very situation. So all of your so-called or all of your lab tests are have been um, identified as being normal, but they haven't ordered the right test to figure out what the problem is. And so just make sure, again, if you fit into this situation where you're having persistent hypothyroid symptoms, that you get evaluated for these antibodies for the reason I just described there. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit, talk about number five. This has to do with not absorbing your thyroid medication. So let's imagine that you're somebody who is on thyroid medication. You've had the diagnosis of, of hypothyroidism, could be because Hashimoto's or it could be for some other reason. Um, and you're taking medication, but you're still feeling poorly. Now, what could be happening here? Well, it could be that even though you're taking the medication, it's just not getting into your body. And I've listed at least, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six different scenarios here, which can, act, which can actually impact how well your body absorbs this medicine. Uh, some of those, and I'm not going to go into detail on all these, but I have links and uh, other articles on my, my website which go into detail on these things, but I want to touch on them briefly here. So the time of day that you take your medicine. Uh, it depends on who you are and, and how your metabolism works and uh, your gastrointestinal function, but those things impact how much of the medication that you can absorb and when you should take it. Uh, for instance, it's the standard uh, recommendation is to take it every single morning, but there are people, and there are studies that, that support this, um, people who take it at night can actually get better absorption just by taking it at a different time of day. So the time of day that you take it matters. Whether or not you have existing intestinal dysfunction. So that would be things like a history of acid reflux, a history of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth, and a history of irritable bowel syndrome or other intestinal issues. All of these things can impact your body's ability to break down the medicine and bring it into inside the body. Whether you take your medication with food, uh, drinks, or coffee especially. I'd say coffee is a pretty important one, but food, food um, would be included there as well. All of these things, if taken at the same time as your medication, can limit its absorption. Uh, that's not true for all medicines. For instance, tyrosine can be taken with food and coffee. I mean, it's a special type of thyroid medication. But, but in general, if you're taking, let's say, Synthroid or Levothyroxine, any, anything that you take that medication with, will food-wise um, or coffee, will impact your body's ability to get that medication from your intestines inside your inside your body and into your bloodstream. The type of thyroid medication that you're taking. So th this should make sense, but some medications are just easier to absorb relative to others. Uh, like I just mentioned, tyrosine is easier because it has fewer binders in, um, and in uh, dyes and fillers and, and things such as that. And so if you have medications that have a lot of these binders and fillers or are bound to things that are like glue, uh, for instance, sustained release T3 is bound to cellulose. That's just a hard thing for your body to break down. So 
less of it is going to be absorbed. So it kind of matters what type of medication you're taking. Um, if you take your medication with over-the-counter over supplements can also impact how much you absorb, especially if you're taking things like calcium or iron, which are notorious for binding to and inactivating uh, the thyroxine component of your medication. So obviously that's uh, not ideal uh, to take those things at the same time. And then, of course, other medications and, um, and formulations can actually impact it, especially those medications which act as binders in the intestinal tract. Um, these medications aren't always common, but at least should be considered. So that may explain all of these, all of these factors play a role um, in terms of absorption of your medicine. Number six, your labs aren't optimized. We spent a lot of time on this as well. Um, this is a really important point. So this kind of has to do with your dose, so like as we've talked about before. Uh, you can be on a thyroid medication, but it might not be the right type of thyroid medication, and perhaps you're not taking the right dose of that medication. So all of these things should be considered. Um, when you take uh, when you take any thyroid medication, that thyroid medication is going to impact your thyroid lab tests. If you're only ordering a TSH, it's sort of hard to figure out how it's impacting you, but I've included a list of what should be happening in the hypothetical example of taking levothyroxine. So as you take levothyroxine, you should see a reduction in the TSH at any dose. The higher the dose, the, the bigger the reduction. You should also see an elevation in your free T4. That makes perfect sense, right? Because um, level thyroxine is a T4 medication, so if you take T4, hopefully, if it's getting into your body, your T4 should go up. You should also hopefully see an elevation in free T3. Now, this doesn't always happen. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but that doesn't always happen, but you hope that it does. And the reason is, your body should be taking the T4 and activating it and converting it into, the free, or into free T3. It should probably have no effect on your reverse T3. Uh, that's, again, this doesn't always happen, but that's the perfect world. This is the hypothetical scenario we're creating. And then you should also see at least, hopefully, an elevation in your total T3. Now, this is the set of labs, the lab test changes that should occur based on your medicine. But this, each medicine that you take will impact your lab test in a different way, which is why it's so important that you look at all of these labs and you try to optimize them as best as you possibly can. So again, it's a complicated topic, but I at least want to touch on it here. Number seven, you have untreated nutrient deficiencies. So this one's pretty straightforward. Uh, what I want to discuss here is the difference between a gross nutrient deficiency and a suboptimal nutrient deficiency. So a gross nutrient deficiency would be something like experiencing scurvy from vitamin C deficiency. That's obviously not going to be missed by, by most doctors, and it's, very, it's exceedingly rare to see um, happen in clinical practice. So I don't, I'm not talking about that sort of uh, deficiency. Instead, I'm talking about just a slight suboptimal nutrient deficiency that occurs due to uh, consumption of even healthy foods, but those foods don't have the same nutrient density as they once did due to soil issues or due to chronic stress that your, your body has to utilize or use more of those nutrients on a day-to-day -day basis. And these sort of suboptimal deficiencies represent a, a bigger, more sinister problem to, your, to you because they are more difficult to diagnose and you can't really test very well for them. Some things you can, like vitamin D is fairly accurate, but tests like vitamin B12, especially in the serum, tests like magnesium, um, those are just not very helpful and they're just notoriously inaccurate. Same goes for zinc and selenium and so on. So um, they can be difficult to, to identify and, and, um, and to treat or to, and to therefore treat because you, can't, you don't necessarily know that they're there unless you have a high index of suspicion. And the, the problem with these, these deficiencies, even suboptimal deficiencies, is that they can create a drag on the thyroid system. And so your system is still working, but it would be you know, like putting glue inside some gears. They're still going to be moving, 
you know, hopefully, um, but they're not going to be moving as efficiently as they could otherwise. And if you provide your body with the deficiencies it's lacking, then that system will work a little bit better. And so what I like, the way I kind of describe that is, it's not that the supplements are going to completely resolve your your symptoms, but for instance, you might be able to take some medications which help your body utilize more easily the medications that you're on, such as level thyroxine. It might help your body convert the T4 that you're taking to T3, and in that way, it's helping your body use it all together. So that's one way that it might be working. Um, number eight is your medications, and by this I mean your prescription medications, may be interfering with your thyroid function. So we talked about previously how medications and prescription medications may interfere with the absorption of thyroid medication, but here I want to talk about how medications can directly and negatively impact thyroid function. Um, and that's most of that has to do with thyroid metabolism, but it can also, some of these medicines can actually just straight up damage your thyroid gland and result in a reduction of, you know, thyroid hormone production from the gland itself. And these medications, you know, this isn't necessarily important to you if you're not taking any other prescription medications, but if you're somebody who's on things like diabetic medications or blood pressure medications, anti-seizure medications, and then of course depression medications, but there's plenty of others, but those I would say are the four most common, especially antidepressants, right? Because a large majority of people take these types of medicines and it can slow down your thyroid function. Now, I'm not recommending that you run out and stop taking your medication because it, that might not be wise. Obviously, well, it definitely isn't wise, at least not without physician consultation. But I want to bring to your attention the fact that these medications can be potentially interfering. And in, in some cases, it may be possible for you to switch to a different class of medications and still get the same benefit that you know, you're getting from your original medicine, but without dragging down or, or reducing your thyroid function in the process. So that's another important one. But again, don't do anything on your own. Make sure you go to your doctor. Number nine has to do with just being overweight. So I mentioned this or alluded to it previously, um, but the the state of being obese, we'll just call it, you know, having extra fat on your body, actually can cause thyroid symptoms by directly interfering with thyroid function. So there is a bidirectional relationship between your body weight and your thyroid function and your thyroid function and your body weight, meaning obesity itself can cause and drag down thyroid function, but also your thyroid can cause obesity. So you can sort of see a vicious cycle here. I think this problem is made worse by the fact that most conventional therapies that target weight loss, so primarily what I'm talking about here would be diets that include calorie restriction, those types of diets actually reduce and put drag on your thyroid function as well. So you're really it's, it's a really complicated situation to help thyroid patients lose weight. Well, I, should, I shouldn't say that. I don't think it's complicated. I think it's only complicated um, if you don't understand the right approach. And so I have a, a unique approach, I would say, um, to weight loss, which I think is uh, very effective. You can learn more about it if you're interested in that, if weight loss is one of your main problems. But generally what I like to do if when I'm treating patients is I like to look at the weight and I like to look at thyroid function and I treat them both simultaneously. Because if you don't address it in that way, it's really hard um, to treat them because they're affecting each other. So they kind of need to be both addressed simultaneously. Another important one, so we're on number 10 here, would be uh, so what what is called or referred to as subclinical hypothyroidism. And this is somewhat of a misnomer, um, right? Because subclinical is supposed to define a state that terminology means a state which is under or below the clinical manifestation of the disease, in which in this case is hypothyroidism. So subclinical just is supposed to refer to a state where you have abnormal lab tests, but you're not feeling symptomatic. Now that's not what actually happens, and um, there have been studies which have showed that this is probably not an accurate um, way to describe this phenomenon. 
But nevertheless, it is important because a lot of people who have subclinical hypothyroidism actually have symptoms. And I think part of this reason has to do with the how doctors look at the TSH and how they traditionally diagnose subclinical hypothyroidism or just hypothyroidism in general. And so a lot of people who are listening to this may not suffer from this, but at least I want to mention it here. So the standard way to do this is for your doctor to do this is to look at your TSH um, and then basically just label you based off of the value of your TSH. So in this case, if your TSH is somewhere between 5 and 10, you would be considered to be subclinical hypothyroidism or sub, you would be considered to have subclinical hypothyroidism. If your TSH is greater than 10, it's considered to be true hypothyroidism. And then in most cases, if your TSH is less than 1, if your doctor's really old school, they probably consider that to be hyperthyroidism. Now, this is sort of the standard conventional way. However, when you look at newer studies, the ranges tend to shift, okay? And so there's a number of studies which have shown that a better representation um, of normal thyroid status would be a TSH that is less than 2.5. So you can see that most of the definitions and standard ranges that doctors are using are fairly outdated. And so if you just happen to go to an old school doctor, maybe someone who's not up to date on this research, let me see one this year. This was 2005, so I guess it's not even that new, right? This is 13, 14 years old. Um, the study was anyway. Um, but if you go to somebody who, who maybe hasn't read this stuff, then they're going to be looking at you from a different uh, standpoint. They're going to be using different ranges. Now, the closer range that I think probably makes more sense is to use a TSH, which is less than 2.5 as being something that's normal. So if your TSH is greater than normal, you might have potentially, quote, you know, hypothyroidism and or potentially subclinical hypothyroidism. But the TSH range should be shrunk down to, to that. Um, if you're suppressed, if you're, your TSH is suppressed, which is usually defined as being something less than some number, usually like less than 0.01 or less than 0.001, that would be potentially associated with hyperthyroidism, but not always. And a TSH around 1 is probably the treatment goal, and most doctors consider that to reflect a euthyroid or norm, normal thyroid state. So I agree and disagree with a lot of these things, but I think um, there's a lot of nuances here, but just to kind of throw this out here and help you guys understand, um, this is the reason why some people with subclinical hypothyroidism are told that their lab tests are normal when in reality um, they're not, and that's why they're experiencing symptoms. So if you are somebody who has subclinical hypothyroidism, and let's say in the standard sort of range here, your TSH is 7.5, if you looked at the newer ranges, that would probably put you in the range where you should be treated. And so that can really easily explain your issue. Number 11 here. Uh, has to do with your genetics or your genes. So there are a number of genes, and the list is growing longer and longer, um, but these genes have been associated with changes to certain enzymes, especially the deiodinases, which impact the metabolism of your thyroid, of thyroid hormone in your body. And so if you have specific genetic mutations at certain genes, it has been shown to impact how your body breaks down and use, utilizes thyroid hormone, um, and that can be extrapolated further, and you can use this information to determine which types of medicines you might do well on. And so I've included a list here, um, and the one that I really want to focus on here, which I think is relevant to the discussion we're having, is this RS225014 uh, genetic mutation. And this mutation is associated with um, a, let, I, let me put it this way, people who have this mutation and who take T4 medication tend to suffer with depression more than any other group. In addition, this group of this population of patients tends to do better on combinations of T3 and T4 medication over just T4 only. So this in this way your genetics can sort of influence how you should and shouldn't be treated. And so again, having just the presence of this genetic mutation may impact um, why you're feeling the way that you are. And then number 12, I think this one's also very important and what it has to do with um, is 
anxiety, depression, and then of course stress. So these are really, I would say stress kind of falls into the lifestyle factor. It could be its own sort of category here, but I want to talk about how the thyroid influences all of these scenarios. So there's a clear connection between stress and thyroid dysfunction in that high levels of stress absolutely cause thyroid dysfunction. And so the more stress that you're under, the worse your thyroid will, will perform. And so it might be that you have thyroid disease, but it's caused by stress. And that's a good and a bad thing. Good in the sense that it's potentially reversible, bad in the sense that it's probably not going to be noticed on your lab test. So you could run, you could run around potentially with hypothyroid-like symptoms being caused by stress, but is not obvious if you just look at your lab test, just your thyroid lab test. So that's one connection. And then the same thing is true with depression and anxiety. So depression, um, well, obviously hypothyroidism can lead to depression, but also depression and anxiety can lead to changes in thyroid function as well. So it's bidirectional. And a lot of that has to do with the impact and the association between your thoughts and your physiology. And this might sound a little bit crazy to, to you at the outset, but it really shouldn't be because we can think about scenarios where imagine you have to speak in front of 2,000 people or something like that and, and you have a little bit of social anxiety. That's going to impact your physiology. It's going to make your heart beat faster. It's going to make you know potentially your, your gastrointestinal fact, tract move quicker, right? It's going to cause butterflies in your stomachs. That's a, those, the thoughts that you're having are impacting your physiology and having effect on you. So that's a similar way that depression in your thought and your mood may impact your thyroid function. So it's in a bi-directional relationship. Um, and treating, it's kind of, so depression can also mimic symptoms of hypothyroidism as well. Um, so I think those are related more to the depressive state as opposed to being associated with a decline or drag in thyroid function. But those things are very important. So if you're depressed, if you're anxious, or if you have a lot of stress, those things need to be addressed and treated in order for you to have uh, an improvement in your thyroid function. The way that I approach this is I usually, again, much like obesity, if you if you have extra weight, you want to treat both of these things simultaneously because that'll get you the, the best you know bang for your buck, so to speak, um, in terms of improving both things at once. Okay, so that's pretty much it. So that's 12 reasons. And again, this is really just touching on these things uh, very quickly. We could go into a lot of depth on every single one of these things. But the reason I wanted to discuss them was just to explain to you um, how it's possible for this scenario to occur. And I know it's very confusing to patients who are like, well, my doctor's telling me I'm normal, but I, I clearly have symptoms of hypothyroidism. Well, now you just have 12 reasons why that might be the case. And much of what I do um, as, a, as a provider, as a clinician, just treating patients, is trying to figure out what's going on here. And so it just takes a lot of trial and error. Now, I have the advantage of having treated a lot of other patients. So I've seen things and I've seen trends and I, I pick up on these trends. And so I'm like, oh, well, let's check out this in this case or, you know, whatever. Um, but as long as you have this information available to you, you can use whatever you think is, is beneficial and, and look down and see if, if you relate or um, of, to any of these 12 things that we've discussed. So again, I know it's a little bit complicated, but you, if you have any questions about it, let me know, leave them in the comments uh, below and I'll do my best to get back to you. And otherwise I'll see you guys in the next one.